Thank you for joining I Am Possible, which is India's first Future Tech Meets Sustainability podcast. Today, I'm delighted and honored to have with me Mr. Omar Sayed, who has been part of companies such as NASA, Yahoo, Zynga, and is currently the co-founder of Shadium, which is built in partnership with Nishchal Shetty, who's the founder of Wazir X. So Omar, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. You have been part of some fantastic companies and, and your master thesis was in neural networks and genetic algorithm. So why don't you start with a brief introduction? Yeah, so my uh, background is in computer science. Um, as you mentioned, I uh, you know, did my bachelor's and master's at Case Western Reserve University. Immediately after graduating from my uh, bachelor's, I actually started uh, working at a company called Raytheon, which is a defense contractor uh, to the U.S. government. And I was in their missile systems division. I did that for a year and I got, I, at first, you know, when I graduated, I was really into hardware, uh, wanting to build ships and so forth. Um, but my, you know, uh, degree was actually in computer engineering. So we covered both hardware and software. And in my final year, I took a course in artificial intelligence. And that was like 1988. <laughs> and I was really um, attracted to that. So after a year uh, working at Raytheon, I wanted to go back and complete, you know, and do a master and, you know, focus more on the artificial intelligence and software uh, side of things. Uh, so I, I started that program, but then shortly after, uh, there was an opportunity for me to join NASA. And in my work at NASA, I was uh, working in the Research Analysis Center, uh, where we were helping principal investigators that actually ran the experiments with collecting data from the experiments and doing post-processing and analysis on that. Um, and so I was able to apply some of the things that I was, uh, you know, learning in my master's in AI to, you know, uh, help uh, these researchers uh, use AI to, uh, you know, separate the signal from the noise and uh, find, you know, patterns and things like that in the data that they were collecting. So it was really interesting work. And around like mid-1990s, I think like 1994, came across the World Wide Web and that was like just, uh, you know, kind of, it just, it just uh, captured me kind of, you know, like, wow, this is pretty amazing stuff, you know, like we can now start sharing information uh, in a way that makes it really easily traversable. I immediately joined uh, the, the team that was working on web technologies at NASA. And one of the things that we uh, developed was uh, called, um, what was that? The, the NASA technical uh, in, in report server. Um, so basically NASA scientists write lots and lots of technical reports and papers, but all of those papers are, you know, kind of like in their internal databases, but it's public information. I mean, you know, it was paid for by the public. So one of the first things we did was, uh, you know, made this information uh, searchable and accessible uh, through an online, uh, you know, database and uh, website. Uh, and, and then um, from that, I also built a lot of internal, uh, you know, what they call intranet kind of products for, for NASA. And I was also involved with the team that was um, hosting the images that were coming back from uh, the, the rovers that had been sent to Mars. So this was like 1996. Wow. That was the first rovers that were sent to Mars at that time. And we completely didn't expect this, but once we started like allowing the public to download the images that were coming back, our servers got slammed like you know, we, I think we were at that time, probably the most, you know, traffic visited website for, you know, a few days. Um, 
and so we quickly had to learn how to scale up our systems and, and you know how to keep them running and so forth. So learned a lot from that experience. So from that, then um, I was invited to join Yahoo. Ended up uh, re-architecting a lot of their backend systems, uh, their whole request routing system, their uh, caching system, um, and we we were able to get like, like several patents on these technologies too. Um, and so from that, then I uh, joined Zynga. Zynga is the company that had made Farmville. Also, uh, after that, I you know joined various startups. Um, one of them was uh, building uh, sentiment analysis for stock market data. So we were like one of the first companies to collect uh, what people were saying on Twitter and various other uh, sources, you know, social media sources on the internet where people talk about stocks and bring all of that data together, run a lot of, you know, lexical analysis and uh, determine the sentiment of the authors. And from that, we could uh, basically tell you, um, you know, which stocks people are happy about and which stocks they're, you know, feeling negative about and so forth. And we actually were able to back test this data that, you know, on, on actual stock market uh, data. And we found that um, our system was beating the S&P 500 by about 25%. So that was uh, pretty huge. What made, made you, you know, take the dive into blockchain and cryptocurrency world? Uh, that actually started, I would say back in 2008, when I was following Ron Paul, he, he was a presidential candidate here in the US. And he would oftentimes talk about how we need to go back to a sound money system. And at the time, I had no idea what sound money meant. So I had to look that up. And, you know, as I researched that and, you know, found that very interesting, started also researching the history of money and, you know, how money evolved, where it comes from, where it goes, all these things, which I, you know, was a big eye opener for me, because like if anybody, like most people, they don't pay attention to where, you know, money comes from. Uh, you know, this is central banks issue the money. That's all they pretty much know. And basically sound money means to back your money that's issued uh, with some sort of a commodity. And the primary reason for doing that is so that the entity that you trust to issue the money doesn't, you know, overprint the money, right? And, and create tons of money, which could cause inflation and so forth. Um, and so you back it with a, a physical commodity like gold, and the issuer can only print as much money as they have gold to back it up. So, you know, as looking at, you know, why sound money is important, and I came to realize that, you know, maybe we don't need to back it with a physical commodity. Maybe we can back it with something like human time and still uh, give it the properties of sound money where that money can adjust the, the supply is, you know, elastic so that it can adjust to meet the demands of the economy. But yet, um, you know, it's resistant to inflation and deflation. And so I wrote an economic paper in 2011 called Sound Money Without Commodities. And so I was uh, searching for a project that had existed back in the 1990s, uh, started by a cryptographer named David Chom. It was called DigiCash. And when I searched that up, I found that DigiCash no longer existed, but then I stumbled on Bitcoin. And, you know, that was just another uh, rabbit hole, which I think I, I still have not come out of. <laughs> so, yeah, as, you know, as soon as I discovered Bitcoin, you know, first thing I read the white paper, um, you know, my background is in computer science. So, I, you know, was able to understand 
what that was saying and it was just shocking to me that how somebody just you know kind of snapped these things together that had already existed to then solve a problem that had been you know talked about for a long time which is basically uh, you know the the byzantine generals problem and how you uh, achieve consensus in a group where you don't even know who all is in the group right <laughs> so that was a really uh difficult problem and you know he he actually solved this without having to create any new cryptographic primitives or anything like that. Um, so I was really attracted to the technology of, of um, what blockchain uh, had created. So yeah, so that's kind of um, how, you know, the, the whole story of, you know, how I went from my interest in computer science to now, um, you know, uh, wor working in the blockchain area. You know, when I came across Bitcoin, I could see that this was not really designed to scale, right? I mean, it was, you know, maybe getting like, at that time, it was getting less than a transaction per second, right? At that time in 2011. And, but I knew like, if this really started to get popular, this would not be able to scale. Uh, Cause you know, when you design systems to scale you really need to design them so that as you add more nodes to your uh, infrastructure, you're able to get more throughput. Um, and, and with Bitcoin, it didn't matter whether you had a hundred nodes or a thousand nodes, it was only going to get the same number of transactions per second, which was limited by the block size and the rate at which blocks were produced, right? So you're just not gonna get more than that and so around like 2014, 2015, people started to recognize <clears throat> that something had to be done about the scalability issues with Bitcoin. And, you know, we saw uh, conferences discussing how to scale Bitcoin and, you know, people publishing papers around that. And most of the solutions were, you know, based on creating second layer solutions, right? Like lightning networks and, um, you know, off chain uh, transactions and things like that. Um, but I still felt that there was a lot of room to um, improve the technology so that even like on chain transactions uh, could go much faster. Um, so in, in 2016, and, and by that time, Ethereum had also come out and, you know, Ethereum had basically shown that you could pretty much do anything you wanted on a blockchain. It just didn't have to be about transferring coins. You could actually create contracts and have basically smart money, right? Um, programmable money. And so that was also a big eye opener. Um, but in 2016, um, I, I left um, my consulting job to focus on uh, building a more scalable blockchain. And, you know, my goal of, and, and reason for why I wanted to build a more scalable blockchain kind of ties back to that paper that I wrote on sound money without commodities. When I looked at how that could be implemented, I realized that, you know, using a system like Bitcoin um, would be essential to that so that you could have a, a trustless system where, you know, the entities that are involved uh, in, in implementing that system, you didn't really have to depend on any entity, uh, even if, you know, they try to misbehave, the system was designed such that the incentives were aligned for them to cooperate, right? So, and in late 2017, I started putting a team together. And in 2018, um, you know, we, we launched um, a project called Shardis, which actually is focused on building the, the block, you know, the sharded blockchain technology. And um, Shardium is actually, uh, 
using that as its core technology so that it doesn't have to start from you know uh, scratch and adding the ethereum virtual machine and smart contracting layer to that um, so yeah so that's um, the backstory of how what what an interesting journey you've had right from building chips for Raytheon for missiles yeah. from you know your genetic algorithm to with nasa to for building scalable web services and then getting into yahoo for the live streaming zynga sentiment analysis for stock market and laying down you know i mean the the uh, giving us the lowdown on what is sound money and Bitcoin, I would want you to kind of like pull you pull you back a little bit because you know so you know my audience kind of understands this and kind of bring it down to base level. But first, you know, before we get into it, I would like like your your brief opinion on you know because you've been you said you, you were invested in uh, building you know chips for missiles. Maybe briefly you could uh, talk about the growing uh, role of AI and it being leveraged for building uh, autonomous drones and uh, autonomous robotics. What, what are your views on that? I think the turning point happened like around, probably around 2006, when Jeffrey Hinton, um, you know, came up with this idea of how to train deep neural networks, um, which, you know, prior to that, maybe you could train networks that were like five or six layers deep but you know now he was you know showing how you could train networks that were like maybe hundreds of layers deep right so uh, that really um, kick-started this whole uh, field um, and since then uh, we've been starting to see a lot of applications of AI um, and you know now we're we have systems that do phenomenal uh, job at face recognition, speech recognition, uh, even, you know, language processing, um, you know, uh, driving vehicles. Uh, I mean, it's just, just going to continue to keep expanding, right? And of course, you know, the military uh, is, is also going to use this technology um, not very fond of, of that application of it. Um, I actually, uh, we, we're, we're living in an era right now where national governments have a lot of power. And I really, really think that um, for humanity to survive and you know go into an era where we become an interplanetary civilization, we really have to get beyond this nationalism exactly. uh, kind of mentality that we're all living in nowadays. And hopefully that will come to change. Um, you know, the world is getting more globalized. We have internet, people interacting with people all around the world. You have things like YouTube with, you know, vloggers traveling the world and shooting videos. So you can even just travel the world from your home, right? So we're becoming a much more globalized civilization. And I hope that that eventually leads to us basically getting rid of borders, right? I mean, you should be able to travel and live anywhere you want and just be a citizen of the world and not be so like, oh, I'm an Indian or I'm an American or whatever, and just be uh, tied down to some nationality or region. Um, exactly. And so, yeah, so yeah. I think... Um, that that's a future that I'd like to see, um, and so I kind of kind of got off the whole AI topic, but this is something that um, I do uh, think about a lot. Um, but hopefully, um, you know, AI doesn't get used in bad ways, right? So that's the the, the thing that I worry about, right? Like, so if the, if governments start using it. Uh, for drones and wars and things like that, that's, that's, uh, it can really get, you know, kind of scary. Um, exactly. But there's also lots of awesome uh, applications of AI that can make our lives so much better, right? So, um, but yeah. 
just maybe 20 years back, you know, I mean, India didn't have the opportunity to kind of interact uh, and understand and, and neither the, the, the world was not open, but this World Wide Web has created so much opportunity. It has given anybody and anyone an opportunity to understand about, uh, you know, somebody who's sitting maybe thousands of miles away and, and educate oneself. Because I, I think, you know, today, with MOOCs, massive open online courses, you know, education is almost free or almost very negligible cost, you know, so the only thing which is stopping an individual is, is the desire and intent. So there is so much opportunity exactly. and with this layer of metaverse coming in, possibly uh, with this web 3.0, we will be creating this digital world, which will not have borders because borders and governments have always worked on kind of dividing people not uniting people. And I, I think Metaverse exactly. Web 3.0 will finally unite people and create a world where it's not centralized, where the user also gets to play a role. So I'm super excited for that world. Would you like to start with explaining what is money? How has it evolved over the years? And the sound money, what you're talking about, maybe you can talk about that. And before you get onto that, uh, what what money is, how has it evolved over the years and sound money, if you can give like a basic uh, lowdown on blockchain, what is it? Blockchain technology is really a way to uh, create distributed systems that can all agree on uh, keeping themselves synchronized, right? Um, so in companies, you know, uh, when we build scalable services, we have to build distributed systems so that if any one computer goes down, you know, the service still continues to, to operate, right? Um, now, it's, it's possible to do that very easily in the company because one entity owns all of that hardware. And we don't actually have to think about things like, well, I don't trust that computer, right? Uh, because we own all of the computers. Now, what blockchain actually does is allows us to do this same kind of a distributed system, but without needing to trust any one entity in the system. And so, uh, you know, the, the key is having many different entities controlling lots of different systems, but all of these systems are cooperating uh, because of the incentives provided uh, by this, uh, you know, uh, blockchain system. Blockchain and the way Bitcoin uses it is just one example of a, a more general concept, which is really a distributed ledger, right? So you could have different uh, ways of doing a distributed ledger. Um, blockchain is just one of them. And, you know, the, the word has been kind of overused, I think, to, to apply to things that are not, e not really blockchains anymore. Um, but, you know, um, I, I guess the best way to really, you know, uh, learn about it is actually for somebody to go back and read uh, some of the literature on distributed systems and classical consensus algorithms and things like that. And then from that, you can uh, get a better perspective of where uh, Bitcoin and it, you know, and its contribution of, of a blockchain fits in. You know, when, whenever we've been working with money in the past, we're all used to just uh, having some central entity uh, having control of our money. We actually don't have custody of most of our money. Like maybe we have some cash in our wallet that's the only money that you really have custody over. Uh, the rest is probably sitting in some bank account or something, right? So, but blockchain technology now opens up avenues so that, you know, we can experiment a lot more with, you know, different ideas of money, right? And, and um, different even ways of, of how to do a monetary system. Right. So, uh, you know, Bitcoin itself is, is multiple things. Right. It's, it's not just the, the unit of exchange, uh, the Bitcoins, uh, but it's also a payment network, you know, similar to like a PayPal or a Visa. And it's also a 
algorithmic monetary system, you know, a rule-based monetary system, which defines what the supply of the currency will be over a long period of time. And, you know, it's chosen to have a fixed supply. And part of the reason why Bitcoin has gotten uh, the level of appreciation that it has is because people, you know, really like the idea of knowing exactly what the money supply is going to be, right? Um, right now, when, when the central banks uh, tweak the money supply, you know, you have like the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates or printing more money and, you know, uh, buying assets and, you know, putting money into the market, things like that. It, nobody knows what the next move is going to be. It's, it's very uncertain, right? Like, so how can you make long-term contracts? Like, let's just suppose I wanted to rent some, you know, uh, building from you and we wanted to do like a 50-year contract on that we have to build in clauses for like, oh, inflation and all of that, right? Because we know that, you know, the, the money supply is going to be most likely expanding. Um, but wouldn't it be nice if, you know, people under, you know, knew ahead of time what that supply curve is going to look like for the next 50 or 100 or 200 years, right? That would allow us to make, you know, long-term contracts and you know deal with our money in a much more certain way right so uh, that's one of the reasons why bitcoin has become very popular um now uh, the in in this um paper uh that i wrote in in uh, 2011 uh, of sound money without commodities um one of the things that i noticed when i was studying the history of money was that in ancient times, people actually had a very decentralized form of money, right? Okay, so what was that? Uh, it was actually shells. If you go back into the 1800s, they were still using them. Uh, and, and that system had been used around the world on multiple continents for centuries, for centuries. So why was it so decentralized? Well, there was no entity who was issuing the Kaurishas, right? Uh, and anybody that was out of a job and had no other source of income, they could go to the beach, collect, you know, shells, bring them back to the market and maybe, you know, buy some bread or something with it, right? And and at least not go hungry. You know, they would have some safety net. But then over time, as money evolved, uh, you know, the kings and so forth wanted more and more control of the money. And, you know, uh, they then you were only allowed to use things which were uh, deemed to be money, you know, like, like stamp coins and things like that uh, as, as, um, as money. And then that went to paper money, you know, making it more convenient, which then eventually, you know, uh, when the telegraph system came out, started becoming electronic money and eventually led to the era that we're in where, you know, it's like 99% of our money is electronic money. And there's a little bit of cash just to kind of make us feel like there's still money, you know, um, but so that's how, you know, money has evolved. And over time, the thing that's happened is we've lost um, in exchange for convenience. We've given up a lot of the decentralization and money has become more and more centralized. Right. Nowadays, it's so centralized. We have central banks. Right. I mean, it's even in the name. Um, and, and so it would be nice to bring back some of the properties of sound money and, and decentralized money, but in an electronic form, right? And Bitcoin goes a long way in achieving that.
right? So there's no one entity that's issuing that money. Um, you know, anybody can participate in the system and try to mine Bitcoin. However, the, the supply is not elastic, right? And so what will happen is, you know, you can think of Bitcoin as like an island and as, you know, there's a fixed amount of land on that island, but as more and more people start coming to that island, the price of land is just going to go through the roof, right? And so it's going to be very um, deflationary, right? So, um, and so that's also not a bad thing, but it would be nice if, if things were stable. I mean, for for day to day commerce and trade, uh, it's it's much more easier to work with a currency that's stable and is you know resistant to inflation or deflation. Um, so in in that paper, you know, I sound money without commodities. I describe a system where um, we could give a fixed amount of money to every individual, you know, uh, regardless, right? It's basically unconditional, universal basic income. And along with it, uh, we would just have a small, uh, you could think of it as a currency tax on the total amount of currency that you have in your account. So like maybe, you know, a small like 1% of a percent per day gets deducted from your total balance. Now these two basic rules actually lead to a very sound uh, money supply, which can grow and shrink based on the number of people participating in the economy. And it'll be able to maintain a very stable price over long, a very long period of time, right? So it would be an ideal form of money to use for uh, commerce and, and, and trade. And I've actually written a sequel to the, um, that paper uh, called um, GetCoin, uh, Global Electronic Trading Coin. Uh, which actually, you know, builds a little bit more on 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 these uh, rules, and and so, you know, that I would eventually like to see that form of money, uh, you know, somehow get implemented in the world, and I think that would be wonderful, right? Because if you think about it, um, as as we head towards a world where you know automation becomes more and more prevalent it's going to be more and more difficult for people to sell their labor in order to earn earn some you know money to to just to even survive right if you even if you had nothing you could probably go and find some piece of land and you know grow your food you know raise some animals and and, and live off the land nowadays everything is taken right it's like you just the only thing a new person coming in this world who has nothing can do is sell their time and labor, right? And if even that commodity that people have becomes, you know, uh, commoditized with AI such that human labor is not needed, then what do we do, right? How do we, how, how, how do humans, um, survive in this, you know, game of life, right? So uh, the only way I see that happening is where we have a new type of a monetary system where every individual receives some uh, basic uh, amount of income on a daily basis. And then, you know, to prevent that money from inflating over time, you can have a very small, uh, you know, currency tax, it's also referred to as demorage. And it can even be as small as like 2% per year, right? Um, so that kind of a system, I think, is going to be necessary for the long-term survival of, you know, the human species and, and you know, our civilization. 
Um, so right. yeah, I think it's definitely inevitable. Um, yeah. And we will uh, see that kind of a money system come about sooner or later. But you know, I, I'm trying to do what I can to make it happen sooner. Uh, I mean, today, I mean, there are some 6,000 plus tokens, you know, so they're all fighting to, you know, be that special uh, future of the money and, and things like that. And then there's Deloitte, which released a, a paper, I think back in 2021, 21, that uh, fiat currency might make way for, you know, cryptocurrency. So that, uh, but you also mentioned that automation, the growing role of AI, you know, taking away our jobs, that is such a conversation, I think, which we need to, you know, look at, because I don't think people are paying attention uh, towards that, the impact of uh, automation and, and the growing ro role of AI. Would you like to talk about maybe, you know, your, the partnership with Wazir X? And what are you building over there with uh, Wazirx? So there's an interesting story behind that too. Um, so when we created Shardis back in like early 2018, um, one of the things that, you know, we, we have a token for Shardis and we wanted to get our token listed on some uh, exchanges so that it would be show, it would show up in coin market cap and things like that. And so uh, one of the exchanges we talked to was Wazirx and Wazirx was just getting started at the time. And uh, Michelle uh, met with me and, you know, I explained to him our vision of what we're trying to build with Shardis, which is basically a sharded, uh, you know, distributed ledger, or, you know, you can call it a blockchain as well. And the approaches that we were taking and what made our approach unique and so forth. And he really, really liked the idea. And he's a very technical person as well. I mean, he literally coded up the first version of Wazirx himself. So, um, and so Nishal had been following our project and uh, in, in late uh, 2021, we did a presentation where we demonstrated a thousand node network, which was sharded and you know, we showed that as more nodes joined the network, we're able to get more and more transaction throughput. And with a thousand nodes, we were able to achieve, you know, 5,000 transactions per second. Um, so out of the blue, uh, Nishal contacts me, you know, I hadn't heard from him for, you know, uh, for four years. And he says, hey, I have some ideas that I wanted to bounce off of you. Um, you know, let's let's meet up. And so we, we met up. And, you know, he basically said that he's interested in creating a smart contract platform. And would we be able to use the Shardis technology that we built over the last four years uh, to accelerate that, right? To, to make a sharded blockchain that has a smart contract uh, platform. And so we went back and talked to our developers and, you know, we looked through all the uh, things that might become an issue, but, you know, we realized that this could be done and it could be built on the technology that we had been building. And so that's how we ended up, you know, partnering together to do this. And so, yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, I'm now able to focus just uh, on, on the technology side. Michelle focuses on the marketing side and, you know, it, it's, it's really a, a good, good collaboration that we have. So, Right, right. What are the applications you think will be able to be built on on your platform? See, you know, the key to um, these platforms, I think, is being able to keep the transaction fees low, right? Because when the transaction fees are low, certain applications become possible, which otherwise would not be possible, right? So, uh, let me give you an example. Um, in 2016, I was doing some consulting for a local uh, restaurant here that wanted to use blockchain to issue coupons, right? Uh, issue some points. So you would go to the restaurant, maybe you bought, you know, some a meal for $10. They want to give you like maybe 25 cents in, in their tokens. 
and you could have this now on the blockchain. Um, and there's benefits to doing that, right? Because with, with physical coupons, you know, there's a cost to actually making the coupons, making sure that nobody uh, makes copies of the coupons, you know, all, all these kind of things. Um, but if you have it on a blockchain, it's, it's very nice. And even, you know, if I have these tokens for this restaurant, I can even give it to my friend and tell him, hey, why don't you try this place? It's really good. Here's some, you know, tokens that you can use and so forth. So there's a lot of benefits to doing that. But when we actually tried to implement this kind of system, we found that at the time, uh, this was like in uh, late 2017, 2016, 2017 kind of time frame, that the cost of doing a transaction to send the person the tokens would be anywhere from five cents to 20 cents, depending on how busy the Ethereum network was at the time, right? And so that just didn't make it feasible to do this, right? So, uh, but imagine if the cost of a transaction could be maintained like, you know, a penny or less, right? Then these kind of things become possible. So I can imagine a day when almost every business has their own token, right? That they can use to incentivize loyalty uh, to their business. So there's a lot of applications that can come. And I think we're just, you know, hitting the tip of the iceberg. What are your views on India's digital rupee and the 30% tax, the crypto gain tax on, on, on NFTs? Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm, I'm really happy that at least now, um, you know, the uncertainty has been removed from whether or not cryptocurrencies are going to be allowed in India. Um, so once the government says, okay, we'll tax it, that's when, you know, you know that you can definitely buy it. And, you know, keep in mind, it's only when you sell it, right? <laughs> so if you don't sell it and you just hold it for the long run and let it continue to appreciate and appreciate and, you know, sell as you need later on when you, when, you know, um, when you really need to sell, even though we're starting with a tax of 30%, I think it'll become more in line, you know, as more politicians also start getting into cryptocurrency and, you know, they also, I'm sure, don't like paying the taxes and so forth. So, uh, you know, it'll it'll get better over time, right, you know, right. and, and the younger generations are, they're very used to cryptocurrencies and, you know, metaverse and, you know, virtual goods. And those guys are going to become our future politicians, right? Exactly. And so things will change. You said holding cryptocurrency, you know, because, but, you know, how do we create a, a currency which we can transact, uh, you know, on a regular basis, you know, because the problem with these cryptocurrency is that, you know, A, we are holding it, you know, until the time we are just holding it, you know, that I don't see it as becoming a, a, a exchange medium. A, address that and B, also talk about this, this one group which says that whole decentralization is a complete scam and, and there's jack dossie and scott galloway who are like i mean the major proponents who are saying this in fact jack dossie tweeted that you don't own web3 the vcs and their lps do it will never escape their incentives and it's ultimately a centralized entity with a different label and in fact scott galloway i think had written a paper where he addressed that how the whales hold the maximum amount of the the funds like the nine percent of top account holders who owns i think 80 percent of the 41 billion market value of nfts on ethereum then the top two percent of accounts of bitcoins own 95 percent of the 800 billion supply of bitcoin so would you like to address that um one of the things that i've thought about uh for a long time um is you know how to create a a, a currency that is fair for everybody uh, is, is decentralized in the sense that it's not issued by some central entity. Um, and then also uh, is, is, can be used for, for you know, day-to-day uh, -day commerce and trading. I think the key to it, uh, there's a, a few things that are key to, to achieving this kind of a currency. Uh, the most important is for a currency like that 
to have a stable price, right? Um, and by stable, we currently think about national currencies, you know, like the rupee or the dollar. But on a very long-term uh, view, like if you look at a hundred, you know, maybe a fifty or a hundred-year view, these these currencies are getting devalued like crazy, right? A haircut, like the 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 nineteen in in nineteen seventy. Um, it, it might've costed you maybe a dollar to get a haircut, right? And, and now you, you pay like $20 to get a haircut, right? So uh, you can see that the money is actually getting devalued. It's really not stable. The world actually has never had a stable currency, right? So, um, but we can achieve that uh, with a system that has uh, unconditional basic income and a currency tax. Uh, combined. Um, so we can actually achieve a stable currency that can be used for day-to-day -day trading. So the, the key thing to it is, is, is having it be very stable. And then the other is adoption from the merchants, right? So merchants accepting a currency just, you know, changes the, the whole landscape because, um, it's, it's really the merchants that can, you know, determine the value of a, of a currency. And if merchants aren't used or aren't accepting it, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it's going to be really hard for people, for people to justify holding that currency. If you have a currency which is being given to every person on a daily basis, even if I spend away all my money today, tomorrow I'm going to get some more. Right. And so now merchants will see that, wow, you know, everybody has this. I'm definitely going to add this as a new form of payment. Right. So without having to make it like legal tender and a government forcing you to accept this, merchants will voluntarily want to accept something that everybody's holding. So, um, so having something that's uh, given to everybody on a regular basis is, is also important to get that widespread adoption. Yeah, so that I think that's achievable. And, um, you know, the GetCoin paper actually uh, describes that and talks about it. Um, so the other uh, part of your question was, you know, the whole decentralization aspect of these, uh, you know, cryptocurrency projects. And uh, there are some people that say that decentralization is not even that important. Um, and I kind of disagree with them because um, I think decentralization is one of those things that's like insurance, um, where, you know, if you if you get insurance, like, you know, car insurance, most of the time you don't use it. But when you have that accident, you really, really feel the need for it right so decentralization is like that and you know you also mentioned that um you know most of the currency itself is owned by a few entities um you know that's true like you know in in, in most of these uh top coins uh, and, and maybe even more so in the smaller coins um and it's almost kind of like jumping from one world where, you know, in the fiat world, the, the, the fiat money is, is really owned, uh, and majority of it is owned by, you know, like 1%, and then the 99% is sharing the rest of, of that uh, currency. Um, it's almost like going from one bad thing to another bad thing, right? Um, but I still think that it's worthwhile to do that, because we want a world in which there's currency competition, right? Let the people have a choice in what currency they want to use, right? So, you know, if a currency has, is really lopsided in the ownership, well, I mean, if people still want to get into it, it's their choice, right? Um, and so I think for that reason, it's, it's really still important and I think over time, things will get better. Um, you know, th that currency will 
dissipate more and we'll probably get more closer to like a, um, what do they call that? Um, there's a, a distribution, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's basically like the 80-20, like, you know, naturally all things kind of tend towards like an 80-20 distribution, right? right? So I think as time goes on, we'll probably get closer to that. Right, right. Yeah, so, so I think we're in such an exciting space, you know, I mean, where we go towards the humanity, I mean, it, it's, I mean, anybody's guess, because there's this, all of these converging technologies and these technologies are growing more potential than us humans. We are in a, an exciting space. Omar, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. My last question to you, your moonshot, your and your roadmap for Shadim. Um, yeah, so basically, you know, we're shooting to have sh the Shardium mainnet launch uh, by the end of this year. And we are working very hard to be one of the few cryptocurrency projects that delivers on its promises. I mean, you know, uh, people have gotten so used to um, seeing these roadmaps and, you know, promises that actually never get delivered quite on time but we're working really hard to try to achieve uh, our milestones for Shardium. And I do believe that, you know, uh, once people see uh, what Shardium can offer uh, with the low transaction fees and while still maintaining a really high level of, you know, transaction throughput, um, it will allow us to enter a new era in terms of what kind of uh, decentralized applications can be built. So, right, and that's 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 the ultimate goal. Okay, thank so, you, Omar. Yep. Really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast and sharing your insights. We are genuinely living in an exciting time. You know, the Web 3.0 we all talk about and we're laying the foundation for the metaverse that we talk about, artificial intelligence, which is going from becoming artificial narrow intelligence to artificial general intelligence, possibly maybe in a couple of decades. It's an exciting thing because all these technologies are converging, you know. I, and it's so important that we need to direct it in a place where we do not repeat the mistakes that we have been making through history, you know, or capitalism or, or governance, the wrongs with the education, the wrongs with the healthcare. We have a choice to kind of correct it and truly find a way and create businesses and experiences which is which which is adds to human wellness, you know, and, and I think that should be the goal, you know, I mean, because technology should be human first. And I think, you know, we, we talk about blockchain, decentralization, the metaverse. I hope that this tomorrow that we are creating is beneficial for all. On that note, I really appreciate you taking time for being part of the podcast. And to my listeners, if you like what you see in here, then please press the subscribe button. And until next time, see you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you, I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.